0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you
1: there. Petrol
2: or electric? Petrol or electric? Why choose? Petrol and electric. Discover the BMW plug-in hybrid range. Visit your BMW retailer or find out more at bmw.ie. Sometimes electric, always BMW.
3: It's Wednesday, July the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, revived and refreshed after my fortnight in the intermittently sunny northwest. Thanks to Harry McGee and to Pat Leahy for reminding the shop in my absence. And indeed, Pat is here again with us today, along with his politics team colleague, Cormac McQuinn. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome. Hi, Hugh. Top of the morning to you, Hugh. You look relaxed
0: and refreshed, and maybe even a little bronzed after your time in Donegal. Yes,
3: well, wind whipped perhaps a little bit more than bronze. But anyway, also here is our health editor, Paul Cullen. And Paul, I'm going to go to you first, if you don't mind, because observing events over the last couple of weeks from the Atlantic seaboard, there seems to be an awful lot of confusion. And I don't know if messing is the right word, but decision making on the hoof uh, in relation to... The approach to COVID over the, next, uh, over the next month or
2: so? I suppose the first thing to say is we have a very complicated decision-making process anyway. So a lot of different people involved, a lot of different actors, some of them very leaky. So you get a kind of a messy decision-making process. And the second thing is the situation with regard to the virus is just not very clear. As you know, we're in a state of flux. We're moving on to a new variant, which seems to be more infectious, which is more infectious, and uh, is becoming dominant here, or it is dominant, or it's, it's heading towards or whatever. So we're facing a new challenge and therefore all the previous sums have to be torn up. We don't have much to go on. And then when you look at other countries, there's a very differing uh, situation. Our nearest neighbor, obviously, uh, the UK is embarking on a huge experiment because they're opening up to the most extreme level possible, even while they're suffering a wave of cases from the Delta variant. The rest of Europe, cases are falling, uh, everything's calm and uh, people are reopening, but that's because largely most countries aren't yet experienced the Delta variant, which will spread more easily. So it's hard to to get a lead from uh, international experience. So based on that, um, obviously, the political process and the, the public health officials came up with a series of scenarios, which to the public seem to differ wildly in in their projections. And understandably, that's led to a lot of confusion, a lot of fear among people who are minded to be fearful, a lot of anger among people who were looking forward to being able to get back to work and get back to business very soon. So it's a messy situation. There's a lot of noise in the data and there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen in the next few weeks. Can I ask you about this
3: modeling and these different scenarios which were laid out? There seems to be a flaw sometimes in the way that we perhaps we do our, our job in the media that we always focus on the worst possible scenario. And looking uh, as a layman at these scenarios, it, it seems to me that the worst possible scenario, which saw, uh, I think, hundreds of thousands of, of positive cases uh, before before the end of the summer, with a consequent rise in hospitalizations and indeed a spike in deaths, I think, of somewhere over, over 2,000, seemed to me to be most unlikely, actually, because it could be predicated on us doing nothing while in the midst of a, of, a, of a fourth wave. How should we understand these kind of scenarios? How
2: useful are they to us in understanding what the, what, what the potential outcomes are? I think, and I've experienced it myself during the pandemic, there's a natural tendency to wish to resist the bad news that they bring. However, they have proved useful in the past. Um, I remember particularly writing a story based on an international modelling agency last spring, which claimed there would be an outlandish number of cases in Ireland and there would be repeated waves of the pandemic. And I thought, this is never going to happen. This is scaremongering stuff. But in fact, it came to pass. The uh, the prediction proved to be pretty accurate. So you're right. Uh, They do describe do nothing uh, situations. They are scenarios, not forecasts. In particular, last week's uh, set of scenarios did not take account of the fact that the resumption of indoor dining was being postponed. So, the you know, the worst case won't be as bad as, as laid out, even as it was. We also have a tendency to focus on the big numbers, and they're the numbers of cases that might arise. That was never the best guide. You should never have relied on that only uh, as a guide to what you should do. And even less so now that we have a lot of vaccination, widespread vaccination around the population. Cases do not translate uh, as much as they did anywhere in anywhere near as high an amount into uh, serious illness, hospitalisation, ICU admissions and death. So, uh, you know, if you take last week's scenarios, you know, they, maybe the least worst one talked maybe, maybe about something like three deaths a day. That's not an awful lot more than we are at the moment. You know, what we really need to work out is, first of all, we have to accept that this is going to be around. This virus is going to be around in one form or another for some time to come. There's going to be flare ups of the virus, particularly among unvaccinated sections of the population. And we've got to decide you know what level of uh existence of the virus is acceptable to society because you know we're not going to eliminate it Uh, we haven't come anywhere near for example the the situation this time last year you know this time last year you would have had maybe a handful of cases and uh, we've never got below two three four hundred day so you know it's going to be around and we're going to have to live with it and we're going to have to decide what's the acceptable level of living with it And of course, a key consideration there is, can our health service cope with it? But by now, you know, there would be an expectation among people that if it had its frailties at the beginning of 2020, they should have been ironed out by now and there should be uh, greater resilience in the health service to cope with waves when they do arrive. Hugh, I think I think there's a point to be made as well about the the
1: impact of of such predictions on uh, decision making in government. I mean, I, I was on duty the night that ministers were being briefed on these uh, modelling figures and and a very scary, pessimistic scenario where there there could be six hundred eighty one thousand cases and more than 2100 deaths i mean that's when i when i first heard those figures my initial reaction was how how could that be right you know and we were careful to make sure we put in the the more uh, benign projection the optimistic projection of of 81,000 cases uh, you know over the over the three month period but uh, in the following days trying to drill down then into well what which of the scenarios did uh, the, did neford believe was the, was the most likely and and it 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 seemed to be then in the middle of two central uh, predictions where, whereby there could be between five hundred and forty five and one thousand two hundred and thirty deaths uh, over the three month period and and that those in themselves are are, are very frightening numbers uh, but there 's no, no doubt that ministers were taken aback when they when they first got the the predictions, and then even even the more benign scenarios or the, the more middle, middle of the road scenarios are quite quite scary. So I, I guess that it would, it would look, it definitely factored into the decision to put off uh, the resumption of indoor hospitality services uh, by a few weeks while, while they try and work out how to uh, prove people are vaccinated.
3: Yeah. And Pat, in relation to that, I mean, the other thing that happened, and again, I was I was observing this from afar, was that there was a kind of a, a screeching reverse break manoeuvre by by the government as evidenced, I think, by I was listening to Eamon Ryan speaking on the radio on Sunday about how some kind of vaccine pass to get into restaurants and bars would be divisive and not something that should be contemplated. And by Tuesday, he was saying exactly the opposite. It's kind of a tricky manoeuvre to pull off.
0: Yeah. Now, I note that um, our editorial today advises the government to be Nimble and ready to make decisions and change directions on a daily or weekly, weekly basis. So perhaps the government are, are, are about to follow that advice. The Taoiseach made the point speaking to journalists on, on Monday that, and I suppose we come on to talk about this in, uh, in a moment, but the idea of using the EU COVID pass as a, a ticket into, you know, bars and restaurants. And that is something that the government Government policy is explicitly against. Now, it does seem that they are about to change it because they are examining the change, examining that potential change with the representatives of the um, hospitality industry. There's another meeting tomorrow, and Leo Varadkar said yesterday he expects or he hopes at least to be able to bring proposals to government next uh, next week. But that does require a U-turn in, uh, in, in in government policy. And to be honest, I think that I, 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 I'd agree with the sentiments in, in the editorial this morning that the government is going to have to uh, you know, is going to have to swerve and uh, tack and jib. I think for the next uh, for the next while, as the situation with regard to the how the Delta variant is playing out on the ground takes shape. Because, as Paul says, there is uh, there is a great degree of uncertainty as to how the Delta variant actually impinges on the operations of the health service and so forth. So the experience in the UK where they're way ahead of us, both in vaccination, but also in terms of the spread of the Delta variant has been that while cases have gone up, that hospital admissions have uh, have gone up at only a fraction of the pace and deaths only at a fraction of what was seen elsewhere. And in a way, this is the set of decisions that confronts government within the next week which I think is about the continuation of the restrictions that are in place on indoor dining, um, and and in some respects on uh, on other areas. Is that the original idea of the restrictions, and of all the restrictions, going right back to you know the general lockdown was to protect the health service from being overrun. Now, if there is no danger of the health service being overrun, and that is the case, if hospital admissions stay down despite the rise in Delta variant infections, then you would have to say, what is the rationale for keeping restrictions in place if there is no danger to the health service? So in other words, is the government about to change the rationale for restrictions from protecting the health service to simply protecting people from uh, from getting sick with this uh, with this or getting infected with the virus, so in that sense, I think government is in a very difficult position at the moment because it is being pushed and pulled in several different directions with only sketchy data about what is likely to uh, what is likely to happen in terms of infections and their effect over the coming week.
3: Yeah, there's a couple of things, Paul, that strike me about that. One is that, uh, and I think this is happening; it, it always happens when we start talking about opening up rather than closing down. The kind of the binary choice oversimplifies the the questions which 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 the government and and Nefit face. Um, it's not just a question of lockdown versus opening up. No matter what it, what what's going on in the UK, it's a more complicated set of calculations. And a lot of them have to do with time. It might just be a question of buying time three, four, five weeks um, to. Um, up the vaccine, I suppose level to to over seventy percent or seventy five percent or something, or something like that. And there are certain elements that I mean, Pat talks about nimbleness in government. I mean, we don't really see that with something like the the rather absurd situation we've had, which you write about in the Irish Times today, about the people stranded. On one dose, people aged between 60 and 69 of of Astra, AstraZeneca jabs have been waiting for weeks while... I was talking to somebody yesterday who's been waiting um, for, for weeks for their AstraZeneca jab. In the meantime, their son... Has, is, has been fully vaccinated and, uh, <laughs> and is grand in, 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 in his 30s or 40s. Um, but that will be fixed, I gather, in the next couple of weeks. But it could have been fixed quicker. I was listening to Luke O'Neill on RTE this morning describing that as a travesty. It certainly didn't show much nimbleness, something like that, where they could have just mixed, mixed the jabs, but the system that they had in place meant that they weren't in a position to make that decision and implement it. So that doesn't fill me full of optimism about our system's uh, nimbleness.
2: Yeah, I mean, um it's been fixed uh, for the system but but it was fixed for the people involved it's an, it's another matter. Um yeah, a few things there it points also to the the as I mentioned earlier, the complicated decision-making process with all the multiplicity of different bodies involved. Um Boris Johnson this week did ask a good question. He said basically, if not now then when? And um you know, many scientists would say actually just you know, would you just wait a little bit of, and then get us more, get let more people be vaccinated and then maybe. we. So, but that that has been uh, a constant refrain of the scientific community. Give us a little bit more time. Uh, give us, extend the lockdown. And people are tired for that. Uh, I, I can understand that. Um, looking back, you could say it was justified. Certainly holding off two months in the spring uh, and continuing the lockdown seemed to work in terms of stabilising the situation and allowing it, uh, everything to get on an even keel and uh, giving time for the vaccination program to really kick off. Um, we're not that far, for example, like we've 50 percent of adults are, are are fully vaccinated now, isn't it, um, compared to two thirds in Britain. So, you know, we're not that far off. So we can see what happens when you up that proportion. You still get more cases. So what are you going to do then? Um, down the line so it's as you said it, it there is a, a lack of data because uh, this is a completely new situation we've only heard of the delta variant um, just before christmas Um, it you know it's only it settled in this country for a few weeks Um, the good thing is that we've probably it's probably things are as bad as they can be in relation to delta because we all, all, most of our cases are delta cases but we're not hearing that they're more serious the day the, the figures in england uh, in Britain are varied. In some cases, uh, numbers are going down. Scotland, oh, public health officials here referenced Scotland quite a lot uh, last week. Uh, now, the UK has the worst figures at the moment in Europe and Scotland have the worst figures in the UK. So, you know, they weren't uh, picking a, a, a particularly average country. But even since then, uh, Scotland's cases seem to have peaked and have come down. So it's very, it's really confusing uh, scientists, both both sides of the water, what exactly is going on um, and, uh, of course, if you do look at the graph, uh, which you mentioned uh, for England, um, yes, the graph has gone up steeply for cases, but the other two graphs for hospitalizations and uh, death, well, hospitalizations have gone up slightly in the last while, but deaths have completely flat, you know, and it sounds very callous to be talking about things in, the, in, this, in this, these terms. There are other aspects of this, you know, there is long COVID and uh, there's the impact on, on health care for non-COVID patients and so on that have to be factored in. But it isn't particularly reassuring to hear from the HSC that demand for services are very high at the moment. We've 300 people on on trolleys every day um, before a possible wave comes into the hospitals.
3: Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned Scotland. Uh, I was going through the emails to their our podcast email when I got back from be, my break and uh, uh, Chris Nazzle, he lives in Glasgow. He was a little bit critical about what he described as some of our sloppy language about the protection which vaccines protect. He makes a point that AstraZeneca is approximately sixty percent effective against infection, eighty percent effective against hospitalisation. So that still means that you know that that people who are vaccinated are not one hundred percent protected. But he also makes a point, and I think Chris sent this email uh, before the kind of developments in the UK of the last week or so that uh, he talks about long COVID. You know, and he says from a purely economic point of view the long long tail of people incapacitated by long COVID is something politicians of the political commentariat should be taking more seriously than they are. I mean, is that true? I'm just, I'm completely at sea as to what we actually know in terms of real hard data about long COVID.
2: Yeah, I suppose, again, we'd be looking to Britain. Um, uh, there was an estimate uh, that 10% of people might have been affected by COVID, but it depends on what time period you're talking about. I think that was only... F- uh, five to eight weeks after infection that people were still suffering the effects which is pretty short so you're looking uh, at something you know the uh, body of people who are affected in a, a serious way for a period of months after they had been infected so i think you're talking about something about five of, percent of patients who are suffering symptoms still um you know up to a year after they had they had uh, been infected. And of course, some of those patients um, might have had very mild cases of the disease. So it's a lot of unpredictable. Some of them might have been, been asymptomatic. Some of the ones last year were never tested. Um, so there's a lot of stuff being lumped in under the long COVID banner. And uh, obviously, you know, depending on your experiences, they would very heavily colour uh, your views on that. If you've experienced this, um, you know, you might take a much more profoundly uh, serious view of it than, if you know, uh, your many doctors who speak to me say that uh, what they're seeing tends to fade, and um, they're not the symptoms that are not untypical for uh, the type of viral illness that uh, they, that they deal with uh, before this pandemic started.
3: Cormac, what are the key pressures on inside government now at the moment? The government seems absolutely intent on following the advice of Neffet. Largely to the latter, uh, with, with, with a couple of exceptions. But presumably there are also, and in fact we can see that they're coming under pressure from those sectors of society and industries that are still completely out of action because of the, because of the restrictions. Hospitality in particular, and the, I suppose the tourism industry more generally given the time of year.
1: Well, the 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 key pressures, I suppose. Well, the most the most visible the most vocal uh, surface every Wednesday evening at parliamentary party meetings. It did last week, where Fianna Fail and Fine Gael backbenchers were were complaining about the 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 delay in in hospitality reopening indoor services. And I suspect we will have similar again tonight, and, and pressure on the government to to come up with a plan to uh, to do what Neffed has asked, which is to provide a uh, workable, enforceable system whereby people can show that they've been vaccinated if they want to access uh, indoor drinking and dining in the coming months. Uh, but uh, and also do that quickly. Its its speed is is of the essence here now because uh, the the hospitality industry has been arguing that if we lose most of July, the summer may as well be gone. You know, they, there's all these comparisons to how much business is worth in one one week in the summer compared to the the quiet months in autumn and winter. So you you have pressure coming from within the government in terms of backbench TDs and outside from from the industry. But I will say, I mean, you, you know, uh, you talked about a bit about buying time earlier, and certainly. The decision to put off opening indoor hospitality allows for more time for more people to be vaccinated. It also allows for more time to see what happens in the UK. I mean... um it's it's people in britain won't won't thank their government if, if it all goes horribly wrong this big reopening that they're happening the, the dropping of pretty much every restriction uh, in terms of hospitalizations and deaths but in a, in a way boris may have may have done the, the government here a, a favor as well because while we've delayed aspects of our reopening we can monitor what's going on in britain in terms of the delta and and the, the how that spreads and and the impact on on hospitalizations and all the rest so it's it's just an extra an extra Thing that the the government will have over the over the coming days uh, as they as they try to come to a decision on on our next phase of reopening uh, this monitoring of the UK,
3: Paul. The announcements by Boris Johnson and Sajid Javid over the last few days. Would it be fair at all to look at them as being a sort of retooled version of the herd immunity policy, which was discredited very early uh, last year, but which perhaps might have some greater validity in some people's eyes at this point because of the, the breaking of the causal link between, uh, between infections and hospitalisation.
2: Yeah, it certainly sounds like that, although there have been official denials of it. And people mean different things by herd immunity. Herd immunity is going to be very hard to achieve. Remember, we're, we're only vaccinating adults at, at the moment. So when we give percentages, we're just talking about the adult population. Secondly, we're dealing with a variant, you know, which has an R number, a r- raw sort of uh, reproduction number of eight. It's very infectious. You would have to uh, vaccinate more than 100% of the population basically to get the kind of payback uh, in terms of herd immunity. And then, you know, there are issues about whether the remainder of the population wish to be vaccinated or can be vaccinated or should be vaccinated. Those debates are still to be had. So um, against that, of course, obviously, we've got huge coverage with, with, with vaccines and they are... They are basically working the answer to your question is uh it's, yeah as i say it certainly sounds like they're they're heading in that direction but it is an experiment you know i'm not really sure what the plan b is if it doesn't work that's the question for us
3: and then cormac this question of these passes, should they come to pass for getting into the pub or getting in getting into the restaurant it certainly seemed absurd any idea that it would be an entirely separate process from the process the government was already embarked upon with the with the European pass. Why would you have two parallel processes with all the confusion and the and the cost of that would occur? And I gather from today's newspaper that I can expect an email or maybe even a snail mail paper letter with some kind of QR code on it, which um is the idea that I can just then wander down to my local pub and Wave it at the door and go in for my pints. Is that the idea? That seems pretty open to. Uh, if I know anything about Irish people, that sounds pretty open to abuse.
1: Well, that but well, this is one of the big questions about it. How how do you prove that somebody hasn't arrived down with somebody else's smartphone or somebody else's uh, piece of paper that that they've been sent with the QR code? I mean, I, I suppose one 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 additional layer would be to require people to show ID alongside their their uh, their COVID pass. But but these are the these are the problems that public and restaurateurs will be will be saying that, you know, firstly, it's not something they particularly want to do. Uh, but but secondly, it's, a, you know, they, they're going to be the ones that asked to police it because from all the talk so far, it, it seems to be like it will very much be a self-regulating system. There's no talk at this point that the Gardaí will be involved or anything like that. Uh, but, I mean, it, it, in a way, it might well be just a few weeks of of this kind of of scenario where where they might be relying on a on a covid pass or whatever because as more and more people are vaccinated you know it, it it reduces the the number of people that can't access services for a start but also then you know hopefully the 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 dire projections won't play out as as had been planned so there is there is an element of of hope uh, within government that this will just be a stopgap measure, whatever they come up with. But it, it's it it and it does seem like the obvious solution to adapt the, the EU Digital COVID certificate for for this. But uh, there are concerns about the, the legality of this, and uh, you know, privacy concerns, data protection. Uh, you know, that and and whether does it comply with equality laws and and you know, the possibility that people could accuse they've been claim they've been discriminated against. So these are issues that uh, that government is looking at, and the Attorney General is. Ex- at the moment, uh, it's unclear whether that advice will be ready in ter- before tomorrow's meeting with the hospitality industry. But but uh, I think, as Pat mentioned earlier, the goal is to have some sort of a, a workable uh, or proposal in place, at least by, by early next week, so that uh, it can be discussed at Cabinet.
3: A last question on this, Pat. I was on my holidays in Donegal. Donegal is the, I think, probably is the highest level of positivity for for COVID in the country at the moment, Um, very largely because it's a border county and the border is entirely permeable. I was listening to a Vox Pop in Bunkrana on RTÉ radio last week. And what was interesting to me about it was that most of the people really didn't seem that bothered about COVID anymore. They didn't think it was that serious. There didn't really be a, a sense that life was at danger. And basically there was a kind of how would you ever get off our backs kind of a, kind of a response there. And I wonder, is, is that a harbinger of how people at large are going to start thinking more and more about COVID?
0: This is a really interesting question. I uh, I think you and I'm interested. You should say that because I saw similar patterns in the Department of Health research, um, which was published the other day. This is the ongoing research on public attitudes to COVID and go and restrictions and so forth that they publish every week. Now, previously, when we have been facing into another wave, the the public has become a bit more frightened uh, of COVID. Uh, in advance of that, uh, in advance of that wave. In other words, the public has tended to be. If you track the data, the pub, of, of the public's perception of where we are, the public has tended to be a bit ahead of what has actually subsequently happened and subsequently showed up um, in uh, in in the COVID numbers, and then uh, and then in, in in government actions. And while there are some indications that people are becoming a little bit more. Pessimistic about the future. There is also indications in it that people are becoming those people, and there's always been, you know, has been, you know, the two two groups uh, of people who are less fearful of COVID and people who are more fearful of of COVID in the population. But those who are the number of people who are impatient with the uh, the relaxing of the restrictions is. Growing a little, it's not uh, it's not diminishing. So if that continues, then I think what you're looking at is probably a majority of people who will be saying, "Look, let's get on with it." And this is in tune with our own poll findings. From the spring and early summer, which tended to show that if people once that, that people's attitude and these were taken in a completely different context, of course, but when people people believed that when the vulnerable people had been vaccinated, when the vaccine had uh, had been rolled out, that they wanted uh, they wanted life to get back to normal at uh, at that stage, so. In summary, I think that what you witnessed in Donegal last week on an anecdotal basis, there may be reason to believe that that is reflected across the country at large. And if it is, I think it's an important important shift in public
3: opinion. Right, we should leave the subject of COVID there for today and I'll thank Paul for joining us before we move on to our, our next topic. And so Cormac and Pat are still with us because we have the pressing subject, or always a pressing subject, for uh, political correspondence, which is we have a by-election this week, Pat. Uh, the Dublin Bay South by-election takes place on Thursday, and Count Day is Friday. looking forward to it? Of course,
0: what what better what better way uh, to spend an afternoon uh, for political correspondence than down in the RDS, uh, watching the piles of ballot paper stack up and trying to uh, to look at your crystal ball and see what it means for the seventh count? And um, I think it'd be uh, it'd be really interesting, you know, real uncertainty as to what sort of turnout you're going to get. Turnout in Dublin Bay South has tended to be on the low side. Some of that, I think, is because of the transient nature of the population in some parts of that constituency, which probably inflate the uh, the electoral register and thus depress the turnout, the turnout figures. But, you know, talking to people on the various campaigns yesterday, um, they are all now looking to, you know, to... Put in a big get out the vote effort, particularly Fianna Gale will be, uh, will be doing a big get out the vote effort tomorrow to get its voters to the polls in the belief that if it can get its voters to turn out, its candidate, James Gagan, will stay far enough ahead of Ivana Bacic to make her uncatchable. The evidence of our poll would suggest that that race will be pretty tight. And if there is, to the extent that we can judge any momentum from a series of anecdotal reports on the canvas, there does appear to be some momentum behind uh, Ivana Bacic. And the conventional wisdom uh, of the oft, oft wrong conventional wisdom, but for what it's worth, uh, the conventional wisdom amongst uh, most political observers, political pundits, seems to be that uh, that Ivana Bačić will do well enough on first preferences to make her uh, overhauling of uh, James Gagan an inevitability. I wouldn't be that confident, but I would say that is the probable outcome uh, uh, at this stage
3: and uh, Cormac you've been out with some of the candidates this week including Ivana Bacic so what's your read of how she's performing
1: well, everyone enjoyed, uh, you know, canvassing in the sunshine um, and I uh, checked the weather for tomorrow, scattered showers, so it shouldn't uh, dictate too much against its turnout. But uh, but one thing I was wondering is, I noticed as we were going around both Milltown with Ivana Bachik and uh, Ratgar with uh, Claire Byrne was, uh, the, despite the, the work from home orders and the, the COVID s- situation, uh, a lot of people not at home, actually. Um, I, I suspected that uh, maybe there's holiday homes in the West getting used at the moment and things like. That. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the turnout is uh, tomorrow, given that uh, Sinn Féin had one of its greatest by election successes in a, in a scenario where there's very low turnout in Dublin Midwest in 2019, getting Mark Ward elected because of their very strong get out the vote campaign on that occasion. But to to return to Ivana Bacic on, on the doors, I mean, she was getting a. The, the campaigns always say it. The, you know, there's not there's never been a single campaign team that never said they didn't get a positive reaction on the on the doors. But but she she genuinely did. Um, in what was considered to be quite a, a Fine Gael area of uh, Milltown, uh, there were indeed Finnegale supporters who who said that they were they were likely to vote for her. Um, a a Fall supporter as well, for that matter, albeit uh, one of her her former teachers. Uh, so they. they they may have always been voting for her, but but uh, she, the, Labour definitely did have a, a pep in their step after that uh, that poll that showed, showed them on 22%. And and uh, the former TD, Kevin Humphreys, uh, you know, kind of an experienced voice from, from that constituency. I mean, he, he he went as far as to say that, you know, it, it's possible she could top the poll. He certainly thinks it's going to be very tight between her and James Gagan when it comes down to it. He said as, as few as 200 and 500 votes. So it, it could be a bit of a nail-biter on Friday as the, as the counts come in and... And if it if it is particularly tight, I mean, it, you couldn't discount the possibility of recounts and things like that. Meaning a result could drag on late into the evening, or God, it, it, God forbid, Saturday morning, perhaps either. Um, but that's. It certainly the 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 wind is in Ivana Batic's sails, but uh, it all depends on how how well Finnegall can get their their core support out in a constituency. Remember that you have that had two Finnegall TDs not that long ago. It'd be quite extraordinary if if they didn't return a, a, if they didn't have a single TD in, in Dublin Bay South uh, for the remainder of this all.
3: Well, indeed, and if Ivana Batic were to top the poll, she would undoubtedly win the seat. I, I think Pat. The question is, she needs to be within hailing distance of him, which I take to be. About five percent or so after uh, after the, the the first count I saw a commentator in uh, another newspaper suggesting that if James Gagan doesn't hit thirty percent on the first count he's in trouble what do you think of that
0: yeah I wouldn't quibble with that yeah um you know look of course we had the poll last week, but that was taken you know. A long time before many people would be going to focus in on that but taking that as our base and there's a bit of a you know a decent lead for Gagan in that poll if that was reflected on the day I think if that poll was reflected exactly on the day and of course it won't be but it were it to be re- reflected exactly on the day I think um, I think it would be tight but uh, I think Ivan Abacic would take it. You're right if he gets to 30 percent and Ivana Bacic is around the 22% that she was in uh, uh in the poll then the odds would swing to Gagan uh, uh I think but um but most people who have been uh, most people who have been out and just talking from people ac- across the uh, ac- across the campaigns think it will be closer than that. And of course, we're all operating in a you know an information vacuum, um, uh, uh, apart from the poll. But uh, but I think the feeling of most people and the feeling of most people is often confounded in these things. But uh, but it, it is that that Gagan will Gagan is you know he needs to get to thirty percent, he needs her not to get up to up to twenty five uh, up to twenty five percent if he's uh, if he's going to have enough to hang on.
3: And is there some possibility that the media coverage and indeed our own poll, which I framed it as a two horse race between those two candidates, there are of course many others. You know, many of them coming in at around ten percent. Fianna Fail uh, and the Greens, uh, slightly surprisingly low Sinn Fein. Number I thought in in our poll thirteen percent down from sixteen percent of the general election, but that if it's coalescing into a two horse race, that some of those other votes might go to Batchik as the as the anti government candidate. I suppose.
0: Well, yes, uh, I, I I think soft anti government votes will certainly go to Batchik. Will Sinn Fein votes go to Batchik? Um I'd wonder. Uh, I'd wonder about that. Uh, I mean, she was coming out yesterday saying, look. You know, this, and we reported in our paper this morning, you know, this isn't about getting rid of the government, which is, of course, exactly what uh, what Sinn Féin want to do. She said this is a way of sending a message to the government about certain policies, which is as, as polite uh, a way of expressing opposition as you can possibly get. And don't forget that this is a constituency where, uh, I, you know, you might expect intuitively, and certainly our poll bore out, this isn't a constituency that is hostile to this government. There is a majority of people in this constituency that are satisfied with the way the government is doing. So there is a possibility of intra-government transfers. And our poll suggested that there should be a, a fairly strong transfer of votes from Fianna Fáil to, uh, to Fianna Gael. And you'd wonder, you know, will you see that inter-government tra- or intra-government transfer uh, replicated in uh, in the Green votes. And, you know, if, uh, assuming assuming all the time that, you know, the Greens and Fianna Fáil go out at a relatively early stage, that could, uh, you know, those votes could go to, some of those votes could go to Fianna Gael, or at least the inter-government, solid, inter-government solidarity, if that's what turns out to be uh, evident uh, once the votes are counted, could retard the uh, expected strong transfer of votes to iva- uh, Ivana Bacic. So, uh, you know, I don't think this is by any means a nailed down certainty at all yet. Uh, it, it will be really important. The, the the gap, if there is a gap between Gagan and, and Bacic on, um, uh, on the first count, will be the first thing to look for as an indication of where things are going. And if there is a small gap, then we may be able to call this relatively early.
3: Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Clare Byrne may be a member of a party of government. You I know you were out with her this week, Cormac, but I expect her transfers to go fairly significantly to Ivana Bacic, who kind of occupies quite a similar kind of political brand sort of space.
1: Absolutely. I mean, she, she says herself that her second preference has always gone to Labour and, and will do so again on this occasion. Um, you'd, you'd have to suspect that the uh, the Social Democrats' transfers from, from Sarah Durkin would also benefit uh, Ivana Bacic, as well as, as some of the, the smaller... Uh, Parties and and independents in the race, so it it's like it's likely to be very close. Um, but it's it, one thing that that's, you know I noticed on the door as well is that the Kate O'Connell's name came up, uh, the former Fine Gael TD who who had a falling out with the the party leadership and with many in the the. The constituency uh, locally as well, but if if James Gagan isn't successful in in keeping that seat uh, vacated by Owen Murphy for Finnegale, there will be serious questions asked as to why bridges couldn't be mended with with Kate O'Connell uh, because she would have as a as a as a former TD in the area who who very narrowly missed out during the general election, uh, she would have had a, a very good chance of of getting over the line for Finnegale. So it, that expect those sort of questions to be to be asked if if uh, things go wrong for for Leo Varadkar's party.
3: Right, well, we'll be covering the count, uh, of course, on irishtimes.com throughout the throughout the day on Friday. And we'll do a, a special podcast, hopefully when the, the dust is beginning to clear and we maybe get a sense. When do you think that might happen, Pat? Is that a dangerous prediction as to when we might not have a concrete result, but clear indications of how things are panning out?
0: Yes, it's always a, <laughs> it's always a risky prediction to make. But I was speaking to somebody yesterday who will be involved in the count, and they're pretty... Pretty bullish uh, about, you know, their preparations. They say that COVID shouldn't retard the uh, the production of the result they are hoping for. First counts at around lunchtime, and maybe have the whole thing wrapped up by uh, mid uh, mid to late afternoon. And um, and uh, for those of us who uh, like to have uh, a cool beer on a. Friday night, that would be indeed a welcome outcome.
3: Indeed, I might see you for one of those outdoors, of course. Uh, We shall leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Pat and to Cormac and to Paul Cullen for joining us earlier. Thanks also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We will be back very soon indeed. Indeed, on Friday, we will be with you. And do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.